it is great to have you here for our Sunday night uh, cross training. We're starting a series tonight, Word-Rooted Prayer and Worship, starting with prayer and then we'll the series will progress into our worship as well. Keeping your heart close to the flame. Did you all get a prayer list when you came in? Because you'll need that in a little bit. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 30. You know this account. This is Peter and John, the healing of the lame man as they're going into the temple. We pick it up just after that miracle. So Acts, this is chapter 4, 23 to 30. When they were released, that's Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, this is the church, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, just as an aside, you'll notice Right in the middle of verse 25, they're going to start quoting Psalm 2, verbatim. The early church in their prayer time is going to, they know enough scripture, they're going to start quoting the second Psalm. What I want you to notice is they don't just say the words of David. Here's their view of scripture. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So when they quote Psalm 2, they're confident these are God's words. That's what they're saying. And you, you need to have that understanding of that book we're studying tonight. God's word. God's word is not just another religious term for the Bible. God's word is, it, it registered once in a while. Oh, that's, that's God's words. What you're holding, what you're studying, what you've got on your iPhone. God's words. And then they quote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Now they speak again. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And the request, 29, this is the church. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Remember, that's what got them into trouble, the healing of the lame man. And now they're praying, just keep doing that, Lord while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I've got four or five thoughts I want to leave with you as we work through this passage. First, point number one. Notice first the need for a demonstration of the power of God in this fallen world. 
The whole story comes about as an account of what happened to the lame man being healed back in Acts chapter 3. We're reading 4. This happened in 3, 1 to 10. Here you have this lame man, and, and, it's, and it's this picture. It's this picture of broken humanity in desperate need. And it becomes obvious there are needs that go beyond the reach of just doctrinally sound religion. It's, it's particularly interesting the way Luke, who records this incident, he has this broken man with this vital need, needing a touch from the Lord, and he's at the gates of the temple, and all of the religious people are walking by, helpless to do anything. That there are, there are needs that just the presence of organized religion are not going to meet. It takes, it takes the living touch of Jesus. All sorts of people pass them by as they're going into worship at the temple. And we get this glimpse of a religious system unaccompanied by the living power of Jesus. And that kind of religious ritual is never going to reach this world with the life of Jesus Christ. I just say that briefly at the beginning. What a picture the most desperate kind of human need. He's been there a long time. Religious people going in and out of church. And there he sits. Okay, point number two. This manifestation of God's living touch appears random at first, but flows out of the church's corporate prayer life. I'm reading from three... 31 to 33. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, while following the miracle, those verses, they describe the ongoing results of the prayer life of the church. We know, we know from other passages that this was not just some isolated event, some revival session that they had. This wasn't just a shot-in-the-dark prayer meeting in the church. They were constantly together. Go through the book of Acts and just notice how many times the church is together at prayer. It was the church's first line of resource to situations that were beyond their own scope and ability, like that lame man at the temple gate. In other words, this kind of meeting was built in as a habit into the ongoing life of the early church. It's set up as a model. You know what, we're gonna, what we'll do in a little while? We'll have prayer groups. It's, it's not that fancy. It's not that sophisticated. We've been doing it for eons. 
Do you know how few churches, in our own denomination, do you know how few churches, while they might schedule a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night or something like that, and you'll get a dozen or two dozen people, the number of churches where the whole body takes time and says, we're just going to pray for needs. We have 1,100 churches in our fellowship. You could easily count them on my right hand. Don't do it anymore. Just don't do it anymore. And so here you have... Here you have the early church, and the picture we have is this body of believers engaged in prayer. I want to move on and expand on that now in the third point. Peter and John give their account of the meaning of the miracle that had just taken place. Now, this comes about in the first part of chapter 4, and there are three truths that stand out, and I'm looking particularly at verses 10 through 18. Here's what we note. So this is 3A. First, the power experienced came from Jesus. I get that in 10 and 12 of chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you. They're giving an account now. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, Peter continues, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It's the Jewish nation, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. They prayed for boldness. That's a pretty bold statement to make to a group of Jewish people who deny that Jesus was the Messiah. There's salvation in no one else. That's a gutsy move. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is striking. This is striking. The power of Jesus to save is actually linked with the power of Jesus to heal. It's the life of Jesus. This has been almost totally erased as a reference point in today's church. In this Acts account, People would know Jesus was the cornerstone, not by taking the disciples' word for it, but by seeing the power of Jesus manifested in situations. Whatever else stands out, it's obvious, I think, that the church, this church, us, we, we, we had better not forget Jesus and the life of Jesus. Because nothing else in the church will ever substitute for his presence, his living presence, and his touch. We are not just called. We are not just called to know certain truths about Jesus. Important as that is, we're we're called to introduce people to Jesus himself. And the prayer life of the church is the gateway to his life and presence. B, here's the second thing to notice. I like this. It was obvious to everyone these men had been with Jesus. It's in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I feel convicted by those words. I really do. It doesn't say 
it was obvious to these people, these unbelievers, it was obvious to these people that the disciples knew stuff about Jesus. It's not what it says. The people, people who as of yet didn't even know Jesus, they knew these disciples had been in the presence of Jesus, that Jesus was alive. They, they how can I put it? They carried the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus by his spirit with them. So what, what do people see about us? It's a pretty deeply probing question, isn't it? Do, do they see that we're, we're just, you know, oh yeah, they're, those Christians, they're against abortion. You know. Oh, those Christians, yeah, they're, at least some of them still, are against same-sex marriage. Oh yeah, those Christians at Cedarview, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't watch pornography. Uh, they don't take the name of the Lord in vain. They seem to know more about their Bible than we do. Or, or do they, do they sense something else? Do they sense that there's more than just me in the things that I do? Do they, do they see a life, a power, a presence? Notice, you don't see, it's interesting, you don't see Peter and John snorting about how great their faith was. That, that's a very common and foolish tendency. There are no techniques offered here. No grandstanding. No, these, these men, the unbelievers, these men, they've been with Jesus. And here's the thing. They weren't guessing. How did they, how did they know that? I can, I can see them talking. We don't have it recorded. They've been with Jesus. How do they know? We've, we've seen stuff like this before. We've seen Jesus before he was crucified. He used to to touch people like that. There was something dynamic in that presence of Jesus. We've seen this before. Isn't Isn't that humbling? We've seen this before. Yeah, that Jonathan and Janet. Sorry, I'm just... They've been with Jesus. There is, in a church like Cedarview, say this with all the pastoral staff and all the board members and leaders present, there is a a kind of, of spiritual life and dynamic in this church that is never going to be brought about by any level of administrative expertise that we can summon. It has to be the presence of Jesus. And it comes as people unite in believing prayer. We can never create just a slick enough church that it's going to be successful. Not spiritually successful. I love it. These unbelievers, Peter and John. You know what this is? And this is what scares them. They've been with Jesus. It's just like Jesus. Only prayer, only in prayer can the Holy Spirit just 
move us beyond just our own thoughts about Jesus to the impartation of his life and presence. These people, they said, just ordinary people, uneducated men, ordinary people like us. Because that's the tendency, isn't it? Well, Pastor Don, I know, but you're reading about Peter and John, not George and Mary. But the point is, the text says there was nothing special about Peter and John, except they were linked up with Jesus. Third, C. There will always be resistance to the presence and work of Jesus in this fallen world. I see that in 17 and 18. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. These are the leaders getting together, the Sanhedrin. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, regardless of your religious beliefs, those have to be, those have to be some of the strangest words ever recorded anywhere. In order, in order that it may, 17, in order that it may spread no further. What? Healing? Heaven forbid, lame people walking? Joy? Life? In, in order that this may spread no further. Now, you have to stop and say, where, where can that kind of, response possibly come from? And there's only one place. And it's the devil. The enemy. Wherever the cause of Christ is advanced, not just stuff said, but done in the name of Jesus, there will be forces at work to squeeze the life of Jesus out of that situation, out of that individual, out of that marriage, out of that home, out of that church. It's what Paul was describing, you know these words. Let me read this passage to you. It's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's writing to a church where he had spent some time. He's going to warn this church at Ephesus that they are going to leave their first love and then you read the book of Revelation, and you find Jesus talking to the same church, and he says they've left their first love. So Paul's speaking to this church, pouring out his heart. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're not going to get this by, you know, voting for the right Christian political party or whatever. You're not going to get this. It's not going to solve the problem. Don't think you can usher in the kingdom politically. You can't. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Do you see the call to prayer in this? Against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. 
stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. There it is again. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Do you see the connection? You, you, a church can't be alert unless the church is at prayer. You can't be alert. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And then he says, and pray for me. Pray for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's in prison. And I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Where did Paul get these ideas? This spiritual battle, the need for prayer. It wasn't a concept that he picked up in some seminary library. Paul saw this battle. He traveled from place to place, journey to journey. This is what he did. And took the message in the life of Jesus into cities and towns. And he found that everywhere he went, he had to engage this kind of thing. Prayer. He had to pray. Pray for me. Pray with all perseverance. Pray with supplication. Now, study the reaction of Peter and John, and we're, we'll, we'll, uh, we're getting there. So four. The man is healed. They are lectured and threatened by the Jewish leaders. No more of this Jesus stuff. They go back to their church. We're picking it up here. Study the reaction of Peter and John to this opposition. It's in 23, 24, and I'll read 29 just to save some space here. When they were released, so they weren't free to go whenever they wanted, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Okay, here's what happened. And when they, now stay with what's happening, the they is the church that's listening to them. And when they heard it, they, they lifted their voices together. I wonder what that sounded like. They lifted their voices together to God and said, quote, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and now, and now, Lord, Look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Remember what Paul said at the end of that passage in Ephesians 6. Pray for me that all words will be given and I'll speak boldly. Same thing here. Church praying for Peter and John. Help them to proclaim your word boldly. Now, here's what they did in the middle of this situation. Peter and John. They went to their church. 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. So that's significant. They are, they are so tightly linked to their community of faith. Peter and John, apostles, it never dawned on them to try and cope with this situation without the church. 
think we need to learn something in that. We'll see in the next point, the reflex reaction of these disciples was to link their situation. They didn't just pray themselves. They linked up with their church in prayer. They linked up with the body. That was their first reaction. They didn't look for a good subject, a good book on the subject of faith. They didn't get the phone number of a good counselor. They didn't seek a lawyer for litigation and advice. They didn't just say, well, we're going to grit our teeth and try and get through this. None of that. They said, go to the church. They'll pray. B. The next thing it says is they lifted their voices to God, 24. And when they, the church, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I'm going to look a bit more at the content of their prayer in just a second. But notice, this wasn't just sort of quiet, pious, inner meditation. They, they lifted their voices together. They weren't shouting because they didn't know if God would hear them. That wasn't it. It wasn't to demonstrate that they were really charismatic or Pentecostal. It wasn't that. And it wasn't just some leader who said, let's just scream our lungs out. Why? They lifted their voices together. Because, one, they were aware of the desperateness of their need. They were in earnest. They were, they were moved. They were impassioned. This was important. They felt the weight of what was happening in that situation. Two, they lifted their voices because they were aware of the strength of the enemy. They weren't taking him lightly. They were putting all their energy into this intercession. Maybe, maybe do you think, maybe they remembered the children of Israel going around Jericho. Maybe they thought of something like that. Seven times. Last time, break all the pots. Everybody shout. And the walls came down. And here they are facing the opposition of the enemy against the life of Jesus. And they lift their voices together to God. I love it. These aren't spiritual maniacs. They're just people intense and intent on what they're doing as they intercede. Three, they lifted their voices because they were aware of the awesome power of God. God was great in their eyes. See, I've, I've had the experience. We frequently take time in services together and I'll say, folks, let's just lift our voices and give praise to God. And I didn't learn that somewhere in Bible school and I'm not trying to prove that we're you know, really on the edge of revival. It's nothing like that. But there's, there, there's something about the greatness of God and being aware of his greatness. And I've seen people who will say, Pastor Don, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be yelling and shouting praises in church like that. And I guess you don't have to. I'm not saying you can't get into heaven. But I've been with those people at a hockey game. Those same people. And I've watched them when it's something that really reaches their hearts. 
I've been on the green with people who won't raise their hands in church. I've been on the green when they sink a 30-foot putt and seen them go, yes! You know what it is? These people, they cared about this. They cared about it. It was the closest thing to their heart. They lifted their voices because they were aware of the greatness of God. They were engaged. Five, last point. I want to look again at the content of their prayer. They focused on the power of God in creation. You see it in that 24th verse? And when they heard it, when they heard Peter and John, what had happened, they, the church, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so there's this focus on the creational power and majesty of God. They didn't just proclaim they believed in God the Creator. This isn't just a statement against evolution. It's not just believing God created. There's a knife sharp difference between a belief in God that's theologically accurate, God created the heavens and the earth, and one that is prayerfully powerful. Lord, your power is greater than our enemies. We trust you to be greater than the nations and the leaders and the persecutors. We believe through our prayers that you can accomplish your purpose in our situation just like you accomplished it in creation. You're that kind of God. And then as they prayed, they brought everything that they knew to be true of the power of God creationally. They bring it into their present situation in verse 29. And now, Lord, that's what you did in creation. You haven't changed. So, so here's what that means. Now, Lord, look at their threats. Do you see what they're saying? Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And now, Lord, those are the three important words. We trust you to be the same God, doing the same things right now. Here's the difference, in my opinion, between a Bible-believing church and a New Testament church. A Bible-believing church agrees that this is God's word and agrees that what the text says is absolutely true. And that's very important. We're, we're Bible-believing in that sense. But a New Testament church, a New Testament church says, Lord, not only is the text historically true, but I know it describes the way you work today. I know this is what you can do now. I know this is how you can work in our situation. We call upon you because there are many things that are never going to happen in our church if we don't call on you, because we can't generate them. We can't generate them. And they aren't self-sustaining. That's exactly what the Christians in Acts 4 did. They knew their Old Testament. They knew what they said about the Creator God, and then they applied what they saw in their Scriptures to their present situation. I have about three more lessons that I want to take out of that passage that we'll look at next week. But I don't ever want to lose our, our prayer times together. Don't ever want to lose our prayer times together. And I want them to be 
theologically informed. That's what we did tonight. And I want them to be spiritually dynamic and life-giving to our present situation. 